Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I want to welcome you to this next installment in our series on heaven. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline with uh, today's message. It's an outline of where I'm going today with our message. It's entitled Marriage and Rewards in Heaven. Two questions that we'll address about heaven today. We're taking a different question or two every week. Today, we're going to talk about will we be married in heaven and what are heavenly rewards? I told somebody about this during the week and said we're talking about marriage and heavenly rewards. And goes, what if your marriage isn't considered a heavenly reward? Okay, and I went, okay, well, we'll just come Sunday and you'll figure it out. And so we're going to talk about those two topics today. I want to uh, also welcome the folks who are joining us uh, via video over in Cloverdale. Uh, we're excited about that. I want to let you know that we have people who join us via video at Pike Road in Cloverdale Today, as of today, in Wetumpka at our 9.30 hour, we live-streamed a message to Wetumpka, and there were 130 people at a worship service in Wetumpka today. Yeah. So we found out on Friday, I had somebody Facebook, sent me a Facebook message Friday morning. They told me that, hope it's okay. We've got people we're worshiping. We're live-streaming a worship service into our living room in San Antonio. Is that okay with you guys? We went... Um, yeah, that's okay. You can do that. So uh, if uh, you're watching us in San Antonio, welcome you <laughs> as well. Uh, but uh, Center Point, we hope to have lots of locations because we want to tell lots of people about Christ. And today is no exception. Today, we want to help center our lives on Christ by focusing a little more on heaven. If you need a pen, by the way, to fill in the blanks in your outline, just raise your hand. Our ushers will be coming up down the aisles, and they'll be uh, glad to pass you a pen. We want to talk about heaven and people have asked me sometimes, they say, well, why do you talk about heaven? I mean, a whole month on heaven, is that really necessary? Yeah. Yeah, it is. In fact, we should spend more time than that. We should probably do it once a year. Um, because if you and I understand about what heaven is like, that's where we're going to spend eternity. Our life here in this world is just prep time for eternal life. And so that's why when Jesus was asked by his disciples, they would watch the way he prayed. And they said, Jesus, you pray like nobody else has ever prayed. Can you teach us to pray the way you pray? Prayer started out, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we go, well, yeah, that's the Lord's Prayer. I mean, that's how it begins. Well, why would I pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven if I didn't want to know how it was being done in heaven? Lord, uh, let your will be done on earth and heaven as it is in heaven, whatever that is. We can do better than that. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot about what heaven is like. And today we're going to tackle, and these two questions today will help us understand heaven better, but hopefully we'll also see some life applications of, so how does that impact, if this is the way things are done in heaven, how should that impact the way I live today, which is the point of the whole thing. You pray with me, please. Lord, I just pray that today you will use this message to prepare our souls for heaven. We want your will to be done and your kingdom to come in our lives today. So I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way and teach us some things we need to know. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And we want to practice a faith that's in line with eternity each and every day right now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, question number one. Will we be married in heaven? Short answer is no. Next question. No, I'm not going to just leave you there, Okay. The answer is no, but I want to tell you why, and I want to tell you with confidence, I can say, no, that's the way it's going to be, because Jesus himself was asked a question, this exact question one day. And it, uh, Matthew records the conversation for us from Matthew 22. Now, it was not asked originally with the best intent. In fact, here's what Matthew says. Jesus was approached one day by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were political 
where the, in the political upper echelon of the society in Jerusalem in those days. They were politically well-connected. They had a very narrow brand of Jewish faith. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The rest of it they didn't believe in, so none of the Psalms, none of the writings of the prophets, none of that stuff, or the history books, none of the things other than the first five. And so they just, they only had a, they had a very limited theology, which meant because a lot of this stuff isn't covered as much in the first five books as later in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They pretty much believed that what you get in this life is what you get. So they used religion. They used politics. They used whatever they could to feather a nest for themselves because this life was all you had. Well, they saw Jesus as a threat. They were politically well-connected. They were very wealthy, very powerful, and pseudo-religious. And so they saw Jesus, a guy, an itinerant preacher who traveled around healing people, making blind people see, lame people walk, raising people from the dead, teaching from the Bible as if he knew God personally, which he did because he's God's son. Well, they wanted to put him in his place. So they came up to him one day with a question about heaven and marriage in heaven, which they, sure, which they were sure was an impossible conundrum, a riddle he could never solve, and they wanted to stump him. They thought he was a country bumpkin from up north in Israel, and they were going to put him in his place. The only problem was... Uh, they got way more than they bargained for. The good news for us is we understand a little bit more about heaven and about marriage and why it exists because of Jesus' answer. So even though they asked it sarcastically, we get some good insight in about heaven and about how we're to live today because of this. So Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, which would make you very Sadducee. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. Religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead, and they pose this question teacher, and again, you got to remember this would be dripping with sarcasm. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who would carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow, but the seven of the, and the second brother also died, and the third brother married her, and this continued with all seven of them, and last of all, the woman also died. I think someone needs to check into what she's cooking, okay? That's the first thing, all right? But uh, if you want to know, in the margin, you can write Deuteronomy 25, 5. By the way, there's five verses from 5 to 10 there that talk about the duties of a brother-in-law. Old Testament Israel, they were given a chunk of real estate, the promised land, and you were to pass on an inheritance to your children. The land would then stay in possession of your family as part of a clan, as part of a tribe within Israel. So inheritance was very important. And if a brother died without having children, his brother-in-law needed to take the widow in and perpetuate the family line. Jesus was familiar with all of this. He knew exactly what they were trying to do. And this is a trick question. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. And Jesus replied, look, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. You're not even reading the whole Old Testament. So you're coming to try to test me. Let me explain to you that you don't even know what's plainly written in the scriptures because you haven't read all of it. Secondly, you don't know the power of God. You don't believe that the God who's a source of life can raise people from the dead. He said, I want you to understand this. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. So no, there will not, she won't be married to anybody because marriage is obsolete. Here's why. The note here is important. God designed marriage in this world to point us to a better reality in the next. A better reality. 
Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. A man leaves his father and his, uh, father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration. Please circle the word illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. This is an illustration. Marriage in this world is an illustration of relationships in heaven. Christ died for his church. The church is all the people who have come to him, who followed him, who believe in his name. Christians surrendered control of their lives to him. Earthly marriage is an illustration of the relationship, how all of us will have a relationship with Christ and with each other in heaven. So here's the way it works. On earth, (coughs) the deepest, most committed relationship you can have is with someone whom you would spend your life with. You put on a ring on their finger and make sacred vows and you spend the rest of your days with them. And the vows are in force until you can pry the ring off their cold, dead finger. It's only good for this life. But in heaven, the bond we share with our Lord and Savior and with other believers goes on forever and ever for eternal life. The picture is that in this world, you find two people Let's say some, you found a couple. They were married for 63 years. They married as sweethearts in their teens. And then one day they died of old age. And they loved each other and sacrificed for each other. They served each other. Were madly in love their whole lives. And um, we watch them and they complete each other's sentences. They even kind of look alike. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in some of these things? And you see an old couple like that kind of shuffling through the park together and you go... Oh, that's wonderful. I wish it could be that way for everyone. Well, in heaven it will be. For everyone. All the relationships will be that way. A 63-year-long marriage where people are deeply in love and they love each other and then one of them dies and three months later the other one dies because they just can't live without them. That would be the worst relationship in heaven by far. Every relationship in heaven would be a thousand times better than that. And so Jesus says, you don't understand what heaven's about. I mean, why are you worried about marriage? Paul would say, marriage in this world is just an illustration of the relationships of what they'll be like in heaven. Everything will be open. And here, in this world, please write in your margin, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. You can look it up later, but it basically says that love is patient and love is kind. Love doesn't seek its own way. keeps no record of wrongs. Love never fails. It's always thinking about the other person first. And that's why, if you read the life application here, it says that you and I, we must use our marriages to prepare us for heaven. See, God, if if we're thinking about heaven, God has given us an institution in this world to be an illustration to everyone of what heaven is like, where we see this couple who've been deeply in love and they've committed to Christ, they're committed to each other, and we go, oh, that would be heavenly if we could all get along that way. Correct. So the institution of marriage is meant to shape us and get our souls ready for heaven. Paul, who wrote those verses about it being an illustration and talking about how a a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. It's a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. He also wrote that, wrote these verses. That was Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Here's verses 21 through 26. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of the word. 
I tell engaged couples this when they come to me for premarital counseling. We read this paragraph together and talk about how the fact, how it's important to understand that marriage prepares our souls for heaven. It's an illustration in this world of what the relationships in heaven are all going to be like. Open, honest, trusting. I mean, when we make sacred vows, we finally have someone on this earth we can tell our deepest, darkest secrets to. We would never tell anybody else because they'll post it on Facebook in six minutes, okay? We're not going to do it. But in this world, we can have at least one person we can trust. Well, imagine if you could trust everyone with your deepest feelings and never worry about them misinterpreting you. When you have a spouse who's devoted and loving to you, they think of you first ahead of themselves. And you go, oh, I wish it was that way everywhere else. But I got people who are after my job at work. I got neighbors who just, they're just mean and hateful. In heaven, there won't be any mean and hateful neighbors. And everybody will be cheering each other on. So marriage helps prepare us. And every time that I learn to be unselfish, every time I learn to be generous, every time I learn to be kind, every time I let go of a wrong and don't remember it anymore, every time I celebrate that my wife is achieving something and helping her succeed, I'm preparing my heart for heaven and my soul for heaven. Does this make sense to everyone? And so Paul says, hey, this is what you need to do. Now submit to one another. For wives, this means submit to your husbands. For husbands, it means die for your wife. I mean, I was counseling this couple, and my wife was going, oh, I don't think it's right that I have to submit to my husband. The husband goes, well, I don't think it's right. I have to die for you. Okay? Hey, look, that's because we're reflecting the values of our culture. Our culture says this. If you're not getting your needs met in your marriage, get out. Get a prenup. Don't let them have any of your assets. Sign ahead of time. This thing turns south. Get out. Get somebody else. That's what marriage is about. I mean, I am sick to death, tired of hearing people who get married in a Christian marriage, go through all this stuff, and then it gets difficult, and they come in and go, well, I'm not happy, and I know God wants me to be remarried because God wants me to be happy all the time. Well, you're going to find out as we go through the rest of this, that's not the case. And if someone has sold you on a false bill of goods that the purpose of marriage is for you to be happy all the time and get all of your needs met, not to prepare our souls for heaven then you've been sold a false bill of goods. That's wrong. And so we cannot pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we're not even willing for his will to be done in marriage. We're not going to be married in heaven because marriage will be obsolete. If I have a candle and I'm trying to light it in the wind and it won't stay lit, and it's dark at night, and, you, and then you hand me a flashlight, I'm not going to go, no, I prefer the candle. The flashlight's better. The candle's obsolete. Relationships in heaven are better by a million times. The only question is whether or not we will cooperate with God and allow him to shape us and get us ready for heaven. But too often we're not ready about this. We don't pray. We don't want God's will to be done. I want my needs met now, and I'm mad, and I'm getting out. Okay, I don't think you're thinking about eternity at all, and we're not. We're thinking about tomorrow and how I feel right now. And the Bible commands us to think in terms of heaven all the time because that's where we're going to live forever. So if you and I are willing to understand this, the question of whether or not we'll be married in heaven has great application to you and me because if we understand that, then we'll understand that God uses marriage in this world to prepare our souls for the next. 
to teach us submission, to teach us sacrifice, to teach us love. Because marriages will be obsolete there. All the relationships will be a million times better. So that was question number one. Will we be married in heaven? No. Earthly marriage is obsolete. Question number two, what are heavenly rewards? You may go to a funeral and someone has entered into their heavenly reward. Well, what are heavenly rewards? Does the Bible talk about it? Yeah. In fact, I was surprised. I was surprised myself when I started answering this question. I started looking at what the Bible said. I found at least two dozen places, probably 25 separate places in the New Testament where biblical, where heavenly rewards are talked about. The Bible talks about them a lot. Rewards in heaven. But I want to make something very clear right at the beginning. Salvation, being saved, is a free gift. Eternal rewards are earned. I'm talking about two separate things here. So do not hear me saying, saying, well, John Schmidt says we can earn our way to heaven. No, I do not. Salvation is different than an eternal reward. Two separate things. And you'll see this very clear in this passage that I'm about to read, Ephesians 2. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward. Please underline that. Salvation is not a reward. Now, the Bible speaks at 25 places about heavenly rewards, so it's not talking about salvation because salvation is not a reward. Okay, I just got to be, I got to say this over and over again because somebody's going to misunderstand me. It's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. The same guy who wrote that passage, Paul, also wrote earlier in that same letter in Ephesians 1 5. Some instruction about this. He said, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God adopted us into his family. That's what salvation is. When I come to Christ as a sinner and say, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. Please save me. And he does, and he adopts us into his family. Now, if an earthly family adopts a child into their family when they're one year old, 20 One year later, they graduate from college and they graduate with honors. They're walking across the stage and the family's applauding. Afterward, they go, well done, son. Well done, daughter. That's a reward, recognition from their parents. If they had not graduated from honors, with honors, they would not have kicked them out of the family. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? You didn't graduate with honors, we disinherit you. That's not what we're talking about at all. To congratulate the child because they made the most of their college studies and graduated magna cum laude, that doesn't change their family status either way, whether they did or didn't. I met our son graduate last week from college and he graduated with honors and we applauded him. I said, well done. I'm proud of him. It doesn't mean that my other children who didn't receive those awards are no longer part of my family. It doesn't mean anything like that. So let me make this clear. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about being a part of God's family. I am talking about the fact the Bible makes it very clear that once we are saved, God wants us to use our time and our resources and our relationships and our opportunities for his glory. And if we do, he will reward us. Now, this is important because we live in a very self-centered and selfish society. And many people can mistakenly think that the only goal of Christianity is to get you saved. So if I get saved when I'm 11 and I die when I'm 77, and I live the next 66 years, I'm supposed to sit around and talk about football, go to church two or three times a year, eat some donuts and drink some coffee, and wonder what on earth the big delay is. There's nothing for me to do here. 
I'm saved. So I should just sit around and do nothing. And then I'm going to heaven when I die. Yep, I'm saved. That's not the way the Bible talks at all. I mean, it's not a problem with the processing up in heaven. Yeah, it must be terrible to get in. It must be really slow. It took 66 years for me to get in. Okay, that's not the problem. God has left you and me in this world with whatever time and resources and opportunities we have so we might glorify him. That's the only way to make sense of the following passage where Jesus, again, is talking about rewards in heaven. And this is point A in your outline. God honors faithful, God honors faithful service on earth with eternal rewards in heaven. It's always about faithfulness. Will you be faithful with what I give you? With whatever time you have left? With whatever resources you have? And again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is a direct commentary on will there be rewards in heaven? Jesus said, well, sure. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion of their abilities. Please underline in proportion of their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account on how they'd used his money. In case you're wondering, by the way, where the story appears, it appears where Jesus is answering the disciples' questions about, hey, Jesus, when are you going to return and what's that going to be like? So Jesus is talking about when he returns. This is an illustration. That's where he's talking about this. Well, the servant to whom he'd entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more. And he said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Please underline that. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. And flip your outline over. It's continued on the other side. And I've earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You can underline it. Same response. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities that celebrate together. The servant who received two and the servant who received five both received the same reward. The servant with two wasn't expected to earn five. He just expected to do the best with what he had. The person with five, well, he should have returned five. It would have been disappointing if he'd only returned with two. And so God gives us things according to what we can handle. And the only question is, with whatever time we have left in this world, with whatever resources, whatever, whatever opportunities, are you and I going to make the most of them? I want to applaud my children when they make the most of their education, when they make the most of their opportunities on a sports team, when they make the most of their opportunities anywhere. And if me, as an earthly father, if I know that that's important to motivate my kids and to cheer them on, why wouldn't God know that? Well, he does. And Jesus says, this is the way it's going to be. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. The master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. Please circle the word lazy. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has ten bags of silver. 
those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they'll, be ha- and they'll have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Who's lazy? The whole idea of rewards in heaven is to spur us on. We are told elsewhere in Scripture to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Hey, God will reward us. God's watching over us, protecting us. He is giving you opportunities. Make the most of them. Because there will be an accounting one day. Paul talks about this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. He's comparing each one of us to a builder. And what we invest our time and our money and our opportunities in, it's kind of like building a house. And if we use... We invest in a bunch of junk that won't last, then fire will show the value. The fire will show a person's if a person's work has any value. It's kind of like you have a house and set a match to it. It's built out of cheap junk; it'll all collapse. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone escaping through a wall of flames, like escaping by the skin of your teeth. So yeah, I'm saved. Again, salvation is not earned. Rewards are. You're still a part of my family, whether you graduate with honors or not. But if you graduate with honors, I'll applaud you. If you made the most of your education, I will cheer you on. If you and I make the most of our opportunities here on this earth, God will applaud us. That's supposed to spur us on. I want to hear that when I die. I don't want to just waste time for 60 years and get to heaven and go, what'd you do with your life, John? Well, I kind of frittered around. I I figured there wasn't anything for me to do. You mean you couldn't share your faith with any of the neighbors that lived around you, even though there were many times you saw that they were depressed or they were lonely and they didn't have a friend? You mean you couldn't help those people out who were poor and sick and needy, even though you saw the need, you went and bought everything for yourself? You mean you, you couldn't love your wife and your kids? You had to make everything about you? And I'm supposed to applaud that? I wouldn't do that for my kids, and neither would you. Now look, we need to understand this. If we're going to heaven, let's live like it. This is meant to spur us on. And that's what the note says here. Here are some things that God promises eternal rewards for. For enduring suffering and persecution and death for Christ's sake. For loving our enemies. For caring for the poor and the needy for faithfully serving God while looking forward to his return, for enduring testing and temptation. And I think a big reason that you and I don't talk more about heavenly rewards is because a lot of times we don't want to do these things. I don't want to forgive my enemies. I'm going to heaven, but I ain't going to forgive Joe. I'll never forget what he said about me. I ain't forgiving him. I'm a Christian, but I'm not forgiving him. It's my money. I'm not giving it away. I earned it. Why do I need to help anybody with it? Now I want to go to heaven. Don't get me wrong. I mean, can we imagine people talking like that all the time? But yet when Jesus talked about rewards, let me read you a couple of these passages, okay? This is Matthew 5, 11 and 12. It's listed in a bullet point, enduring suffering and persecution. Here's what Jesus said. He said, God blesses you when people mock you and they persecute you and they lie about you. And they say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. He's talking to his disciples here, to Christians, to his disciples. He says, be happy about it. Why? Because Jesus is masochistic. He says, hey, love it when people just treat you like dirt. Love that. Well, why? Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. 
And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. I've been to Asia before where I was a part of a secret church meeting late one night. People met from like 12 midnight or 1 in the morning to like 3 in the morning. They had to go to work the next day, but they would meet secretly so they could study the Bible. If they were found out, if they were found out, they could lose their job. They could certainly lose a promotion. They may lose the opportunity for the kids to go to college. They may be thrown in prison. Well, why would these people be willing to risk all that for an eternal reward? And the reason you and I don't think about it is because we haven't gone through this yet. But Jesus said, hey, if people attack you and say horrible things about you, there'll be a great reward waiting you in heaven. I wish I could tell you that will never happen to us this side of the grave, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that here in America it won't be a radical thing just to read parts of the Bible and then we, we might undergo serious persecution. If I read a passage of the Bible that talks about sexual morality and all of a sudden it says that homosexual sin is a sin, which it does in multiple places, and all of a sudden I'm a homophobe and I'm a bigot and I hate people. I can't even read what it says. Could that happen in our culture? Well, if our culture doesn't change, I think it will. Would I be willing to still stand for that? Would you? I mean, what if it's going to cost us something to follow Christ? Then all of a sudden we'll be counting on these rewards. Why am I giving up pleasure now? Why am I giving up a promotion now? Because I care more about the applause of my Lord and Savior than I do about the applause of men. Christian brothers and sisters all around the world are suffering because of their fellowship and because they love Christ. And they're counting on this reward. Here's Luke 6, 35 through 38. It's listed under their loving your enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus, this is Jesus talking about rewards again. I'm not saying I think we're going to get a reward. The Bible doesn't talk about it. Jesus talks about it all the time to his disciples to motivate them. Guys, it's okay. If you suffer down here, it's okay. I'll reward you. Hang on. Do your job. Keep going. Love your enemies. Be good to them. Luke 6, 35 here. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward in heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for He's kind to those who are unthankful, kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge others, and you will not be judged. Don't condemn others, and it'll all come back, or it'll all come back against you. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, to make room for more, running over, and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you give back. So God will reward us if we endure hardship and persecution. God will reward us if we forgive our enemies. But all too often, I don't want to talk about rewards because I don't want to forgive my enemies. And I don't want to endure hardship. I want to live for this world, not the next. That's why we need to think about heaven. Thy kingdom come Thy will be done in my life today as it is in heaven. Brings us to a life application. You and I, we must not give up when following Christ becomes difficult and painful. There are rewards when we are faithful. That's why we never give up. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, For our present troubles are small, won't last very long, Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix, rather we fix our gaze on things we cannot, that cannot be seen. 
For the things we can see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Occasionally I'm told by people when I talk about heavenly rewards, and they'll say, well, yeah, John, but I mean, don't you think it's wrong if somebody gets rewarded in heaven? I mean, we all get there. I mean, wouldn't it be awful if somebody's rewarded? That might make me feel bad or something. I don't know if that'd be fair. I mean, I can't believe somebody will have a better reward in heaven than I will. And I go, no, it's pretty clear that that's the right thing to do. They go, how do you figure? And I go, look, a number of years ago, my wife and I lived in a cul-de-sac that we shared with several other families. One of the families in that cul-de-sac, there was a gentleman named Bill Lolly. Bill and his wife Amy lived there. Bill received the Congressional Medal of Honor for heroism during World War II. I actually spoke to him about it before he died, um, and he just said, you know, I was just doing my job and all these things. He was very modest and humble. But apparently during World War II, um, he was uh, flying, he was a young aviator flying a bomber and dropping bombs on a Nazi target in Germany. And um, his plane got all shot up. Co-pilot was killed. Many of his crew were injured. And he could have ditched out to save himself, bailed out to save himself, but he stayed with the plane and flew it. And he actually belly landed it on an airstrip, on an Allied airstrip, and saved the lives of his crew, many of his crew. And he said it was no big deal, but Congress... And the President of the United States and other people, they disagreed, and they gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Saw a plaque with his picture on it when I was at Maxwell a couple months ago. Took a picture of it. You go to Wetumpka, you'll drive across the Bill Lolly Bridge. He's a big deal. And um, when he died, my wife and I attended his funeral. 21-gun salute. Airplanes flying over in a missing man formation. And you couldn't help but stand and put a hand over your heart. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would have been to stand up and say, why is he getting that special honor? I'm a citizen of the United States just like he is. Why is he getting that honor? If you just stood up at that funeral and said that, everybody would turn around and go, be quiet. To not give him the honor would be a travesty. And that's the way it will be in heaven. When people gave up houses and lands and careers for Christ, we will all stand and applaud and go, way to go, you deserve that. And the Lord himself will say, well done, Jim. Well done, Susan. Well done. We will stand and applaud. It would be wrong to not do so. But John, to reward everybody like that, that'll take forever. Yeah. We've got plenty of time. Look, this is supposed to spur us on. I want to make the most of my life. I want you to make the most of, my, of your life. I want to enter into heaven. And I want God himself to say, John, I'm proud of you. Well done. And Jesus told his disciples, I want this to spur you on. Paul said, that's why we never give up. We're living for that. And even if other people in this world laugh at us and mock us and say all matter of evil things about us, that's not what we're putting stock in. We're living for heaven. It's also important to note here that God rewards, God rewards the sacrifices we make even if nobody else does. 
If you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. Well, John, you know, I'm not, I might be that guy with one talent. I didn't do anything big and famous and other things. You think God will really notice? His tracking software is up to date. It's really good. You don't have to worry about that. So this brings us to the last point here. You and I are wise if we use our earthly resources, which we cannot keep, to obtain heavenly rewards, which we cannot lose. You and I will take nothing with us when we die. But if we have used our resources to obtain heavenly rewards, we will never lose them. Command those who are rich in this world, Paul wrote Timothy, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. So that brings us to the last life application. Lives worthy of eternal rewards require discipline, hard work, self-denial, and preparation. Not to earn salvation. Please, I'm not saying that. But now that I am saved, now that if you and I are saved and we've, made, and we've begun a relationship with Christ, it's gonna, if we practice spiritual discipline, hard work, self-denial, and preparation, we can look forward to him saying, well done. Because we've grown up and matured and we've become all that he wanted us to be. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit, to grow us up. It doesn't make sense to talk any other way. If you read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we, Christians, do it for an eternal prize. So Paul said, so I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And Paul doesn't want any of us to be disqualified. So let's run. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to allow him to use our marriages to prepare us for heaven, our bank accounts to prepare us for heaven, our jobs to prepare us for heaven, our relationships with our neighbors and our families to prepare us for heaven. And that's why we pray every day, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I just, Lord, I want us to embrace heaven, not just as a place we go when we die, but Lord, as a template for how we're supposed to live right now. If this is how we're supposed to live, and this is how you designed us to live forever, then why wouldn't we want to live that way now? And if you are Lord of heaven, why wouldn't I want you to be Lord of my life today? And Lord, if you want us to have deep and abiding relationships filled with trust and putting others first in heaven, why wouldn't I want to do that right now? Why would I want to be selfish and self-centered and gluttonous and lazy and then hope that in heaven I'm prepared? It just doesn't make any sense. So Lord, change the way we think. about heaven. Lord, I thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ who this day are suffering because they follow you. I pray that you will give them courage. I pray, Lord, that you would develop deep convictions in our hearts that we would not compromise even if people at our workplace or people in our culture make fun of us and laugh at us and say all manner of evil things about us just because we teach the Bible and live according to it. I 
I pray, Lord, you will use the resources and the time and the relationships we have in this world to prepare our souls for the next. I pray that your will will be done and your kingdom will come in my life. Thank you for the promises of heaven. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.